Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, Counting the Cost, by Pastor John. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. Glory to God. Well, good morning. Um, I, I really feel like that the word from the Lord this week as I was praying about it is, is a continuation and a flow of what we've been talking about and just the Lord's heart really impressing upon us as a, as a church, not just as this church, but as the big church to refocus, recalibrate, maybe even recalculate uh, the things that we do and uh, where we're going, the the uh, object of our faith is to be dialed in, so to speak. And we've t- been talking about uh, the reality of following Christ and discipleship. And so uh, this morning, the message that he gave me uh, comes out of Luke chapter 14, uh, the passage where he s- talks about counting the cost of discipleship. And I think that uh, historically, or at least in recent history, uh, there's been a lot of misunderstanding and probably miscommunication of this passage of Scripture uh, that has uh, over-radicalized our faith, so to speak, in ways that are unrealistic. Do do you all know what I'm talking about? This is the passage where Jesus says to hate your parents and hate your wife and kids and even hate yourself. If you don't do that, you can't follow me. And I think that some people have used that passage uh, without historical background and understanding to almost over-radicalize what it means to be a follower of Christ. And uh, how many of you are grateful that Jesus is not asking us to hate our families uh, or even hate ourselves? Yes. So what are we to make of this passage of Scripture? Because His Word is still very true and applicable in our lives. And so I want to uh, just spend a little time kind of looking at historically why Jesus would say something like that. I love the red letters. Do you all love the red letters? <laughs> I know that they're, they can be challenging. Have you all heard that term, the hard sayings of Jesus? And as people try to process and preach the hard sayings of Jesus, I think it's impossible for us to unpack correctly and accurately the hard sayings of Jesus without understanding historically why he said those things. And, and as we look at Scripture, we always have to remember that it wasn't written to you, it was written for you, but not to you. It was written to a specific people group, and that specific audience that was hearing that had a specific context in which they would have understood. So let's talk about that a little bit. But let's read the text first. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 14, starting in 25. Oh, just to give you a heads up on why I'm even going here is just as Alan had announced that we're, we're really reshifting our focus um, to, to focus on discipleship and to figure out what the Spirit is saying and what that looks like for us today. So the bottom line is for us to see and understand and embrace and hear from the Spirit about what He's saying. What does it mean for us today to walk a life of discipleship? So I, why don't we just commit that to the Lord before we read the text? So Father, we love you. Lord, it... It is beyond our ability to fully comprehend all that you've done in Jesus Christ. To change our world, to rescue us, to 
Sanctify our hearts and our minds to set us in your very family. Lord, the idea that you would say something negative about family is hard for us to grasp because you are a family and you're all about family. And so, Lord, as we look at your word today, Holy Spirit, would you come and fall on us? Would you speak to us? Would you open up to us the reality of what you're asking us to do? and who you're asking us to be. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so uh, Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Now the great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to war, uh, make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we have to consider this situation that says that the multitudes were following him around. And I think that it matters that we back up a little bit uh, into chapter 13. And we're not going to read it, but I'll just tell you that uh, he was confronting uh, the religious rulers of the day and they had sent people from Herod and Herod wanted to see him. And Jesus says to him, you go tell that fox that today I perform cures and miracles. And tomorrow, I go to Jerusalem, if I said that right. He he made an allusion to his rising from the dead, but he did not want to go and get to a place where he was handed over to Herod. Uh, It wasn't his time yet, because he knew what Herod would do to him. And then it goes along, and Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you'd only known, it's her chicks. And then he goes on to tell some parables about uh, a wedding feast, right? It says right from there that he goes and he has a meal at a Pharisee's house. And he teaches that little lesson about all the guests being invited and just about taking the lower place. That way the host would actually invite you to a higher place rather than everybody clamoring for the best seats there at the party. (laughs) Those Those are some real life applications that still happen. But then he goes on to tell a parable about uh, a king throwing a feast. And he talks about those that were invited made every kind of excuse under the sun why they couldn't come to the feast, right? He sent his servants out and said, come, the supper's ready. And uh, they said, oh, you know what? I can't make it. I just got, I got married, you know? I got got marital issues. Got to take care of my wife. I've I've just bought five uh, oxen. And so I'm training those, you know, I've got to get out in the field and 
you know, busy work, just all the excuses of why they couldn't come to the feast. And the master of the feast says, I tell you what, go get the lame and the, the broken, the, the maimed and the deaf and the mute and bring them in here. Somebody's going to taste my supper. And then he comes back and says, Sire, there's still more room. And he says, go out in the highways and the hedges. Just bring everybody in here. Somebody's going to eat my supper. Those that were invited, they're not going to make it. That's the context of Luke chapter 14. That's verse 13, right? And so you can imagine that those that had heard that kind of a parable and some of those rebukes are wondering what is going on. There's got to be a buzz in town that Messiah, the long-promised and awaited king of Israel, the, the promises of God that the Davidic prince coming from the line of David would come and he would do miracles when he comes. And here this guy's doing miracles. And so in their mind, they're thinking, finally, finally, after all these years, Israel will rise again to its prominence and to its power and authority and might as a nation. This is what's on their mind. And it says that the multitudes followed after him and he turns around to that crowd and it's to them in that context that he addressed them. He said, do you really want to be my disciple? Do you know what it's going to cost you to follow me? If you, if you don't hate your family, like if you can't give up your family, and give up your own life and everything that you own. And not only that, but take up your cross and follow me. You're not, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. Now, why would he say that? Taking up their cross was no figure of speech like it is for us. It was literal. And I think that most of us in our Christian walk, if we don't have some understanding of Jewish history and even world history surrounding the time of Christ, uh, we may get the idea that the, this object of the cross and this idea of uh, uh, penalty and, and uh, torture and execution was exclusive to Jesus. But do you all know that they had been practicing crucifixion for over 500 years when he made this statement? Crucifixion was specifically... Uh, set aside. It, it was a type of punishment and execution and torture uh, specifically for political and religious agitators. So if, if you were in the business of standing up and saying, which many people did, that I'm going to start a new way of life, I'm going to start a new kingdom, I'm going to start a new people group, and you began to gather people to yourself, disciples maybe even, and you challenge the status quo or the current uh, governing and ruling and reigning authority, well, they then would seize you, try you for treason, uh, beat you, mock you, scourge you, strip you down naked, pummel you, spit on you, make fun of you, and nail you to a cross and say, how's that authority looking now? You have nothing, like not even human dignity. So you have to understand that way before Jesus ever suffered crucifixion, there were thousands and thousands of people who had been crucified. For what? Being political and religious agitators. 
messing with the status quo. So when he told them that you will have to take up your cross to follow me, he wasn't lying. He was warning them and telling them the truth. You know, what happened to Jesus' disciples? What was their end? They all got martyred. No, John was even martyred. He just didn't die. <laughs> but there was many of them that died a couple of times and they kept coming back to life and finally they just run them through the sword later. You know, the church suffered 300 years of intense persecution after Christ's resurrection and ascension. So this is pretty strong words that Jesus would say that drastic times call for drastic measures. I just want to read you a little bit of history about that. So in, in 519 B.C., Darius I, he would have been there, uh, what was left of the, the um, Babylonian Empire. Uh, he was actually the king of Persia when the Persians took over. Uh, he crucified 3,000 political opponent, opponents in Babylon. So just to give you a little bit of, how many of you know the history of Hanukkah? Okay, Linda knows. So Hanukkah, and I'll probably talk more about this as we get closer to um, Christmas because they celebrate that same time that they celebrate Christmas. But the story of Hanukkah, do you all know about the Maccabean revolt? So the Jewish people... Um, the Jewish people had been subjected to all kinds of um, other authorities, the, the Syrians primarily. And uh, Antichius, I don't know that I said his name right, but he was one of uh, the um, Syrian rulers, had actually uh, had power over Israel and Jerusalem, and uh, he was warring against them. And the, the Maccabees, so Judas and Simon, the two brothers, they're, they're the ones that Hanukkah is celebrating the day that they went in and redeemed the temple because this guy had gone in there and sacrificed pigs on the, on the altar in the temple and uh, desecrated the temple. Uh, and how do you say and Antiochus Epiphanes, I think is the way you say his name. But anyways, um, so this whole thing was that inside of uh, Judea that men rose up and actually seized uh, their land and their power and took the temple back under their control and they had fought uh, and won back their nation, right? Um, and that's why they celebrate Hanukkah was the cleansing of the temple. That's, that's what, lighting the menorah. That's why they light the menorah. They went back and reestablished uh, the temple. So, Simon's son, Simon Maccabeus. And Maccabeus is not really his name. Maccabeus means the hammerer. So these guys were like warriors. Uh, but his Simon's son, John uh, Hyrcanus, he was the high priest and ruler from 135 BC to 104. Under his reign, the Hasmonean kingdom of Judea attained power and great prosperity. And the Pharisees, this matters, the Pharisees, a scholarly sect, with popular backing in the Sadducees and Arist uh, aristocratic sect that comprised the priesthood, became well-defined religious parties underneath these guys. So when we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these guys didn't exist until this period of time. And they ruled and they reigned over Judea, the territory there, um, 
through their actual high priestly role. Does that make sense? So anyways, Hyrcanus was the youngest son of Simon Maccabeus, again, the guy that uh, rescued the temple. And thus, he was a member of the Hasmonean dynasty. And that was actually one of their ancestors' names, uh, was Hasmonius. So Simon uh, and his brother Judas the Hammers commanded the force that hero heroically repelled the invasion of Judea uh, from Syria and King Antiochus, uh, in 135 B.C., Hyrcanus' brother-in-law, Ptolemy, the governor of Jericho, assassinated Hyrcanus' father and two elder brothers. This, this is interesting. He had a brother-in-law that was ruling uh, over Jericho. And because Hyrcanus was now, uh, had been set in place as the high priest, how many of you know that the Messiah that everyone is waiting for was of the line of David? The ruler that they were waiting for was of the line of David, not of Hasmonea. And yet these guys are in power over Judea. Y'all getting where I'm going here? Hyrcanus then succeeded to the high priesthood and became supreme authority in Judea because his brother-in-law murdered his dad and his brothers. The remainder of Hyrcanus's reign was marked by his efforts to punish his enemies, ward off the Syrians, and enlarge Judea's boundaries. Although he struggled in vain to destroy Ptolemy, he successfully thwarted Syrian incursions by allegiance with Rome. Ah. So he partnered with Rome when Rome didn't seem to be too much uh, by getting soldiers and help to overthrow uh, the Syrians. And he conquered the unfriendly neighboring territories of Samaria and Idumea, which is Edom. He forced Idumea uh, to convert to Judaism. That was the first example of conversion imposed by the Jews in their history. Hyrcanus was succeeded by his eldest son, Aristobulus I. Hyrcanus's reign was last under uh, which Judea was the last under which Judea was a powerful United States. So y'all are seeing this timeline there, right? Aristobulus I seized back here. Seized the throne from his mother, jailing and killing his brothers. He conquered and forced the uh, some people of Lebanon to convert to Judaism. He was the first of his house to adopt the title of king. All right, now this is where it gets important right here. Alexander Janaeus, he reigned from uh, 103 to 76. The last guy only made it a year. His reign was filled with wars. He imposed his rule rigorously over an increasing large area and including both cities of the coast and the areas of the Jordan River. This is where I'm going. In 88 BCE, Alexander Janaeus, the Judean king and high priest, crucified 800 Pharisaic opponents. And it goes on and on and on with this back and forth and flirting with Rome until Rome actually seized and put the idea of a Judean king of a national power to rest as they took over uh, the territory there in Judea. And as we know, Herod was reigning in the days when Christ was born. 
Quite interesting stuff. So Herod himself uh, reigned in Judea from 37 to 4 B.C., and he's the guy who built a Greek theater, an amphitheater, and a hippodrome in or near Jerusalem. Y'all know what else Herod and his sons were building? The temple. They were rebuilding and beautifying the temple. So the Herods had taken the, through the power of Rome, had actually taken the power away from uh, this other Hasmonean line. And this family now was in charge of ruling uh, over Judea, though it through a vassalage or a tetrarchy, which is kind of like a puppet king, not really a king. Y'all follow me? A, a king in the eyes of the Jews to lord it over them, but not really any real authority. All right, and then in 4 BC, so think about 4 BC, right before Jesus is born. Archelaus, uh, there was a messianic revolt that erupted in Judea in 4 BC. And because of Archelaus's incompetence, the revolt was brutally crushed by the legate of Syria. Publius, and the name doesn't matter, who occupied Jerusalem, so a Roman soldier guy who occupied Jerusalem and crucified 2,000 Jewish rebels. So I said all that to say, to put in historical context, that <clears throat> the area and the people of, of Judea and the people of Jerusalem were very accustomed to watching kings and religious leaders rise up and take the throne and take authority. And those that got in the way, they just would crucify them. Is that a shock to anybody to go, oh, wow. I, I think it matters that we have the context of why Jesus would say, look, I'm not the leader that you're looking for. I'm not who you think you want. Because, yes, I'm the, the Messiah that's doing the miracles. And, yes, I'm of the lineage and house of David. I am the son of David. I am the son of man. I am the miracle worker. I have been sent by God to establish the kingdom of God. And yet, I'm not what you want. Because if you want to follow me, you got to give up everything. It's going to take your family. It's going to take everything you own, and it's even going to take your dignity because you will be crucified. Does that help you with understanding what he meant when he was talking about those extreme words, those hard-to-read red letters in Luke? Everybody's like, wow, pastor, that's depressing. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it matters that that we zoom in on this idea of following Christ so that we don't get the wrong idea. And I think that today, even today, it's our challenge to make sure that when we follow Christ that we know what we're signing up for. I think God wants us to know what we're signing up for. Now, today, there's not a power struggle, and we're not in ancient Judea, and we're not there to uh, uh, try to overthrow the government and, uh, you know, risk brutal and even nasty execution. That's, that's not on our plate. But I think that the, the truth still matters that it costs something to be a disciple. And that we need to actually answer some questions of what, well, what does it look like for us? It doesn't look like that. Is everybody relieved that it doesn't look like that? I mean, I'm relieved. I mean, you know, if we lived in the Middle East or China or somewhere, it might be. There are people groups today that uh, are still, you know, 
what, Sudan, places like that, where you be, could be beheaded for your faith, but we don't have that going on here. So Christ's radical warning was uh, an invitation to a sacrificial mission with little chance of personal survival. Drastic times call for drastic measures. And I think that in our lives and throughout all of history, there's always been this uh, theme of drastic times call for drastic measures. Um, I've got a movie that I like uh, because I have a, a, um, a nice surround sound theater upstairs. And this particular movie is a tank movie that Brad Pitt's in, and it's I think it's rated R, so it's got stuff in it that I'm not uh, uh, condoning this movie. But in the movie, the, the last scene, that's a picture from the last scene, and these guys have uh, tank battled it out, holding off the the kind of the end of the war there, the Germans from taking over, I think is a part of France. And there's this moment when they they have been victorious. They've lost a lot of soldiers, but they've been victorious and they roll in and they take over this town. And as they roll into this town, they run over a mine and it blows the belt off their tank and their tank is stuck. Now they've been winning all these battles with this, with this tank and as a team, and there's five guys or something in this tank. They're all working together. And uh, uh, there's this moment in the movie, though, when they blow the thing off and one of the scouts comes back and says, we got bad news. There's a whole platoon of Germans headed our way. And they're like, we cannot give up this road. They had done all this work to, to save that road and to keep the advancement of the enemy from coming any further. And the captain, the captain said, well, we may not make it out of this. If y'all want to tuck tail and run, go for it. I'll, I'll just, I'll stay here and do what I can. Y'all seen this, this theme in movies before? I mean, I think the Avengers, all the superhero movies that do this, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, where your back's up against a wall and you're, you're tasked with saving the world and you have to look at your crew and say, I couldn't ask you to give up your life. Because if you want to stay here with me and save the world, you're going to have to give up your life. We're probably not going to make it out of this. And they all have that gut check moment where they look each other in the eye and they Oh, let's do it. I'm not going anywhere. How many movies have you seen that theme in? You know where they got that? Luke 14. It's the most inspiring thing ever that the leader, the hero, would actually give them the opportunity to come along. So not only was it a warning from Christ, but it was an invitation into what seemed like an impossible mission for them personally. <clears throat> Sacrificial, sorry, not impossible. Sacrificial mission with little chance of personal survival. N.T. Wright says this, any of us at any time might be summoned to give up everything to respond to an emergency situation. If we're not ready for that, we're like the tower builders and warmongers who haven't taken the time to evaluate what they're about. That's really what's going on in, in Luke chapter 14. He's like, look, you guys come from a long line of people that go to war and build great buildings. And I'm just warning you right now, that's not how this is going to turn out. We're not building buildings and we're not taking over empires. The kingdom of God is not like that. So most of the people that were following had their own kind of expectations of glory, of what they expected Christ to be and what they expected him to do. And then when they saw who he really was, you know, when Jesus would give them a hard, uh, hard word about 
what was really up, a lot of, a lot of them turned around and went away sad. They're the same ones, by the way, that were there chanting, crucify them, crucify them. Because their expectation of what he was going to be was this military commander, this Davidic character like King David. In the days of old, they would hear the voice of God and with 10,000 actually take on armies of 20, 30, 100,000 where the power of God would come in and just mow everybody down. And the Lord said, that's not what we're doing. And I think that I think that in our day, we have to be open to, Lord, what, what is it? What does it mean for us to follow you? Have I actually had expectations of who you are that are not actually who you are? Y'all ever had anybody do that to you? Like, they, oh, I just love you, but they don't really love you. They love what they see in you of themselves. And it makes them feel justified in who they are because they think that we're the same. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And then you get down to a little deeper fellowship and you realize <laughs> we don't know each other at all because you just expected that that's who I was. That's not who I am. I think that there's some of that going on with our relationship with Jesus. I think that it matters that we would actually, Jesus' warning still holds true, that you would sit down and actually map out what it's going to take to follow the Lord. This is where it gets, you know, a little confrontational, but it's true that I think when we, we, we get into God's presence and we hear a gospel presentation and we feel the Holy Spirit wooing us and the love of God and all that, it's great and we want to be a part of that, you know. But I think that there's a disservice the church has done and not actually filling out the rest of the lines and saying, look, that there is a need to actually evaluate where I am and what it's going to take for me to get to where he's calling me to go. Okay? I mean, it's like marriage. How many, how many people married people? And you don't have to raise your hand. But how many married people you met in the love of your life? They made your heart sing and beat wildly out of control. And you didn't care at any cost. I got to have them. I just got to have this person. This is who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. You know, there's, that's great. Until like the honeymoon and you're like, Man, your breath smells, you know, or <laughs> you breathe too hard when you sleep, or what's up with the toothpaste being squirted out on the sink, you know? There, 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 is, a, there is a need, a real need, that if we're going to succeed in the future to actually at some point, whether you do it at the beginning or you do it in, uh, after you get started or you do it in the middle, I think that there's this need for us to reevaluate what it's going to take to succeed. And so I, I got, uh, for those of you that may be dating, I don't know if anybody's dating in here, but uh, for those of you who may have been dating, I actually took a course and got certified as a premarital counselor. And I haven't got to do a whole lot of that, but the premarital counseling, uh, because a lot of people don't want premarital counseling. I marry people all the time and like, hey, you want to do counseling? And they'll give me one day, maybe two days of their time and I, I just try to get in there as much as I can. But basically, it's this idea of let's look at who you are and who they are, and let's actually see who they are, and let's actually see who you are. A lot of us don't even know who we, who, who we are ourselves. But if we're honest, there are questions that we can answer that actually lines out, oh, I think like this, and they think like this. I have these expectations. They have these expectations. You put these together, if they don't align, what are we going to do? We're going to have to do something, or it's not going to last. It's going to implode. 
I think we do that with the Lord too. We come in with, here's all of my expectations. And Jesus has got his expectations. But if we don't ever look at those and put them together, a lot of people get disappointed in their Christian life and say they got burned by the church, but it's probably because they never actually were following Jesus for who Jesus actually is. You know, and I'm afraid to even say this, but I mean, a lot of us have signed up for the Jesus did it all gospel. And yet he did all of what he was supposed to do. And he'll never take that back. He says, if you want to come after me, there's a cross to bear. And we just need to know what that is. And I think it's upon us right now that there's a, a reevaluation is to look at what is God calling us to do personally and as a church and in this day and age, in this generation. Y'all notice the churches are fizzling out. Church participation is kind of, you know, an option anymore. It's not like it was when I was a kid. I think every, no, I know, every generation actually has to step up to the plate and, and look and go, okay, this is what it really is to follow Christ. And I'm going to have to make some decisions to alter my life so that I can actually accomplish being a disciple. Because we've gone over in the last several weeks that being a disciple actually is receiving eternal life. It's the process of being saved by grace is actually the process of allowing Christ to be manifest in our flesh, right? You all heard me beat this up a little bit. But so that it's not this, you know, faith isn't like I, I got to... You got the same faith as I got. We both got faith. Well, look at there. And there's, there's nothing in there. No, faith is not this mysterious thing. Faith is a proclamation, it's a declaration, it's a holistic experience that my life and everything about my life, that that's the king. Yes. That's my king. Yes. That's my rabbi. That's the one that I'm serving. That's the one that I'm following. doesn't mean that we're perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. It means this, this loyalty thing that we've decided to make our profession, which is public, so that the whole world knows if you know me, you know where I stand. Does that make sense? And that the, the, the way in which I've ordered my life is congruent with that testimony, right? And I know that we all make mistakes and he's a God of grace and he redeems and thank God for that because we don't always get it right. Most of the time we don't. <laughs> make lots of mistakes. That's why he did it with grace. But the result of us being saved, the final salvation is, as I said two weeks ago, the righteousness of God, which is Jesus' righteousness. And the only way to accomplish that is to allow him to be who he really is in you so that you are becoming that. You're being transformed into his very image. Amen? I think that inner healing goes for this too. I see, I see a, lot of, a lot of believers. Y'all know that we do inner healing here, right? We have freedom team and we really believe in working on our personal life. And I think that it's it's... It's one thing to come into the kingdom of God and receive uh, this deliverance through the person of Jesus and to have all of this history in our background of, you know, fatherlessness and abuse and trauma and all those things. You know what? God is, wants to heal us of those things. 
And that's another one of those things you're like, if God has called me to be a, a force to be reckoned with in the earth, because that's why he saved you. He saved you not just to be air under the cup. He saved you so that you could be one with him, that you can carry on his very life and his mission. So that if we come to him and we've got all this woundedness and brokenness and orphan spirit and all these things, it it's count the cost. Like, look at that and go, man, I've got that stuff going on. I mean, I've got uh, an RTF scheduled for April. Anybody know what that is? Called Restoring the Foundations. It's like a week-long intensive uh, where you just go into your childhood and everything that's ever happened to you. Just barf up everything, every offense, every wound, everything that the enemy has ever done to you. We need that. I mean, that's part of it too. There's, there's a lot of things that we can take account of our lives and go, all right, for me to get to a place where I'm a disciple, where I'm in relationship with others, where I'm actually growing in God, that's what it means to be a disciple, that there's a disciplined uh, approach, there's a disciplined learning uh, lifestyle that is underneath the submission and that's what the church is here for. That's why we're all here to help each other. If that's where I'm going, to the effect that I step into the Great Commission, that I make disciples, that I am then teaching uh, those to obey the Lord and everything that He's commanded me. Well, then I'm like way over here and that's way over there. If that's the case, then what is it? I mean, it, this is counting the cost. Do you all see where I'm going with this? That God is calling us to a season of actually taking an account of our life and looking at it and saying, okay, I hear what the Lord is calling me to, and this is the stuff that is keeping me from getting there. And so I need to make a plan to deal with it so that I can actually get down the road in the, in the calling of God. Alan didn't just start doing what he's doing with all this missionary stuff. Uh, right out of the grave, you know. I mean, Alan has uh, committed his life to the Lord. He even told me yesterday that, how old did you say you were? You want to share that real quick? Short version? No, that's all. When you're young and we have ambitions, we have desires to do things. And I was the same way. As 16, 17 year old, I had plans for my life. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a successful engineer. I wanted to go into all these things. And then my family had an opportunity to go to Guatemala only to study Spanish, which seems nefarious. But they were supposed to put us with one host family, and they couldn't do that once we arrived there. So I got stuck with a Guatemalan family living across town from my folks, and they didn't speak English. And for three months, I lived with this family. And during that time, God just cracked me open like an egg to see, you know, their their satisfaction and their happiness apart from all the things that we had here in the West. You know, and anybody who's been into a third world country, that's one of the things that impacts you. I recommend it for everyone. You know, just see people that can be happy without all the stuff that we have. And that's just, it's an impactful thing. But God did something deeply spiritual in me as well is to say, you know, I can show you a greater happiness in your life if you'll just give it to me, all your plans in the future. So the Alan who went to Guatemala and the Alan that came back were not the same. They just were not the same. Just completely. And, and there have been little times for that to happen 
over and over in my life. But that, that one is always one I can look back and say, yeah, that just was one of the major seasons in my life to just count the cost and give it up. So, yeah. That's so awesome. So that's Alan's story. And, and God has a story for each and every one of us. If you're walking in a place where you've uh, just given up on all of your own plans and hopes and ideas and surrendered those to the Lord, then you know what I'm talking about. But I think that there's seasons in our life when God asks us to put that stuff back on the altar again. And um, it's just, a, it's a beautiful, sacred, and holy thing. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says this. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And uh, Michael Berdour really just shook me up a little bit. Um, it's been about two months ago now. When we were at our pastor's retreat, and he said this, we need long-term vision to change the world. Political activists in the 60s mentored people like Michael. Michael told his story about how before he received Christ, uh, he was a hippie and a political activist in the 60s. And he actually had a mentor, someone that was training him. They were out riding on the streets in San Francisco. And this guy said to Michael, he said, we're never going to change the world through protests. But if you get your law degree or a PhD in history, become a professor, and we can change the minds of a whole generation. Guess what? They did it. So someone is changing the world. It's, not, it's just not us. Because we don't have a long-term vision of how to. He was saying we we're content to get touched and then have a nice life, live the American dream. So, but we as a church, I'm talking the whole church, we didn't institute a long-range transformational plan to bring about fullness of the kingdom of God on earth. And that's something that we are backing up. That's what we're talking about. In doing that, we actually created a vacuum that was filled by others with radical ideas. How many of you know the college campuses today are riddled with these people? And guess what? They've been at it for 60 years, planning strategically to change the thought life and the direction of a whole generation. You realize that that's what we're up against today. And every radical and crazy thing that you're seeing out in the public right now, especially in the schools, and that is taking a hold of our kids is because of that right there. They planned ahead. This is what I'm talking about. They sat down and considered where they wanted to go. They counted the cost and gave the sacrifice to make that happen. It's all about priorities. Michael says this, we all have 168 hours a week. How are we managing our time for God's glory? Are we so seduced into the American dream that we can't extricate ourselves? We're like stuck. We obligate ourselves to thousands of things that have no eternal meaning or value. The, American, the average American watches 27 hours of TV a week but can't make it to a small group. 27 hours a week. Y'all listen to some of these statistics. Put up the statistics. There we go. 57% of Americans admit to cell phone addiction. They spend 31 and a half hours a week on their mobile devices. And that's up from uh, 
21 hours just a year ago. In 2023, Americans check their, their cell phones on an average 144 times a day. 89% of Americans check their phones within 10 minutes of waking up. 75% feel uneasy leaving their phones at home. 75% check their phones within five minutes of a notification. It's over there. 75% use their phone on the toilet. Ew! You all know you do it. 69% have texted people in the same room. You all ever done that? Hey, you want to go get popcorn or something when don't want the rest of the people in the room to know? 60% sleep with their phone. You believe that? Overall, the average American will spend over two months, 65 days on their phone in 2023. Wow. And y'all, I'm just being honest with you as a pastor. When we have started these different programs, we have home groups, we have Tuesday night classes to work with this thing of discipleship. And where is everybody? I mean, look, the place is half full. Where is everybody? Oh, we're busy, pastor. I know that's in your face a little bit, but it's true. We are living in a culture that is pressing us into the mundane and the absolute nonsense of just wasted time. It's, it's a cultural thing. That's what I feel like the Spirit of God is saying. Look, wake up. Let's wake up from our sleep. It's like we're drunk or asleep in this reality of our culture that is influencing our lives. If we say, well, I really would get up and read my Bible, or I would get up and pray, but I'm just, I'm busy, or I would go do that evangelism thing, or I would go to home group, or I would help out mowing the grass at church, fill in the blank, but I can't, I'm busy. And yet we spend two months of our life, the average American is going to spend two entire months looking at their phone in 2023. Is anybody able to go, yeah, that's right, Ouch. I mean, this is like turning the mirror around. Ow. I don't want to see that. And that's, you can just Google it. That's, that's just public knowledge. So I'm wrapping up right now. We're going to take communion, but I, I, I really feel like the Lord is asking us, what does it look like? What does it mean to bear our cross? What, what, what does it mean for us today to make a public difference and make a public example uh, to, be a, to be a believer in Christ? What, is it, what does it look like as, as we um, move forward in the kingdom of God? I've asked my kids lately. We've started a new little home group that's just my kids. Holy Spirit's been there. It's been awesome. Uh, but the Lord rattled me and said, I have got to, and we have got to, those that have, of us that are older, we have got to turn around and look at the next generation and begin manifesting the life of God and pushing this discipline and this commitment to Jesus and this life, these values, these convictions into them so that they, in a way that they receive them, not in a dogmatic way. Y'all got to hear me on this. I'm not, I'm not being dogmatic. If there's a dogmatic tone about this at all, please don't hear that. But there is a challenge. There is a challenge from the, the throne of God that we would actually take our life seriously. Like that we would say, God, you've called us. You're, the commission, the thing that you've set us to do is to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. 
That's, there's no getting away from that. I know I keep bringing it up, but that's what we've got to do. And so what does that look like for us today to make adjustments to our lifestyle? Maybe it means putting your phone in a steel box for checking it twice a day instead of 60 or 70 times. I don't know. Maybe it's actually filling your life with something like I'm going to commit to being in a relationship with someone that is older and more savvy than me, that I see their life in Christ and say, I want to be like that. So I'm going to pursue that person. I've got people, I've got four or five people like that in my life. I intentionally seek them out. I call them and I go after them so that I can have that life that they carry passed down from them to me. And then in return, I'm going to go and I'm going to have my eye open for those that are younger than me that need to be discipled. And we're going to, we're going to keep talking about this because the, the, um, the life of our church, the, the way that we do things, not on Sunday, but on other days of the week, we're going to shift and we're going to be intentional about this and we're going to try to not be weird about it. You know, there's... It's been a lot of weird and a lot of abusive ways people have done this over the years. And so we're not doing that, but we can't, because people have done it wrong, shrink back and say, well, we're all just going to do whatever. And that's, I think, what is lacking in the big C church. Y'all hear my heart on that? I mean, I just feel the Spirit of the Lord saying, look, are you willing to, I give up everything for you. Are you willing to give up Netflix or Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, favorite TV show, something. Give me some nights. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.